am Judy Carter, and this is the Power of Purpose podcast, where we explore how to have a purposeful life and how creative people like yourself can make a living doing what you love. And my guest today has certainly done that. Oh my gosh, Steve Bluestein. He, uh, we met. When did we meet? Um, we met in 1970. <laughs> <laughs> it was in the 70s. It was in the 70s. We were both doing stand-up. Um, and since then, Steve became a headlining stand-up comic, playing everywhere. Um, he's a writer. He's a playwright. He was, you were just in New York, I was right? just in New York. We did a reading of uh, Rest in Pieces, which is uh, one of my plays. And it was very successful. And I'm not going to say much, but it's good. <laughs> it's if you do say so yourself. It, it, it's what's good. It, what's the name of it again? Rest in pieces. Rest in pieces, and 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 he has uh, so many followers on Facebook, uh, so popular because Steve has actually made his purpose in life and his career be. Um, Complaining, I would say, <laughs> right? Which Seinfeld said stand-up is complaining, complaining, but funny. Complaining, yes. And and you, you wrote a memoir, The Memoir of a Nobody. Memoir of a Nobody, right. And, and yeah, go ahead. And oh, I just, things would happen to me, and things happen to other people, and they just go on with their life. But things happen to me, and because I'm a comic, I see it in a different way. I see it, I see it com comedically. For instance, I was going to a doctor's office, and there was a girl on a bicycle, and she cut me off. And then later on, we were at a red light together, so I rolled down the window, and I said, you know, I almost ran you over. And she said, hey, pops. And that's all she said was "Hey, pops." And I wrote two, 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 two chapters on how, in a fifteen minutes, I'd become pops. <laughs> is this part of your book, "Memoirs yeah, it, of a Nobody"? Memoir of a Nobody. Yeah, it is part of my book. It's one of the chapters, and uh, and then when I got to the doctor's office, everything because at that time I was with an HMO, which I always called a horrible medical or organization. I was an agent, and when I walked into the waiting room, they had Jerry Springer on the TV. And I thought, who has Jerry Springer in the office? You know, and, and there were two women sitting on the bench across from me. One was sopping wet like she had just come out of the shower, and the other one had her leg in a cast. And all of a sudden, the lady with the leg in the cast started looking through the hair of the woman who had just gotten out of the shower, like two baboons that were looking for ticks. <laughs> and, and I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, is it just me or is it because I noticed this stuff? And I think it's because it goes because I see everything in a comedic way. Yeah, and I think that's the difference between someone who's a comic and someone who's a civilian. Right. Is that a comic, uh, you know, we, we complain, we feel the misery, but we see the absurdity in the things around us and do something with it, right? Right. Isn't that the big, isn't that the major difference? You do something with it. Now, 
I categorize comedians in two categories. There's the intrinsically funny person, and then there's the comic who has learned if they say seven words in a row and stop, the audience will laugh. Now, <laughs> David Brenner was an intrinsically funny comedian. He was walking down the street in New York City, and a manhole blew into the air in front of him. And without taking a beat, he went, heads. <laughs> right like that? Yeah, heads. <laughs> you know, and that's someone who sees something and instantaneously can find the funny in it. And, and I, I, David was very, very nice to me in the beginning, as was Gabe Kaplan. Uh, but the, the other comic, I mean, they're good comics as well, but they're not, they don't have that edge. You know, they, 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 they don't sound like, like if you're at a, at a cocktail party with them, you won't be laughing because they're not funny. Well, don't you find most comics um, are not that funny in life? No. Aren't that funny in life? Like, like uh, people go, I have a great idea. I'm going to have a dinner party and I'm going to invite all these comics and it'll be so much fun. No, it won't be, right? No, no it <laughs> will not be. It'll be like you could cut the you could cut the jealousy with a knife. <laughs> Absolutely. And the discussion will be on the various creative ways to off yourself, right? right. Or 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 you'll hear about nine times. I have I have this bit that I do and then they'll do it. <laughs> right. And it's it, anyway. Yeah. But then there are the people who are funny in life, genuinely funny in mm. life, but would never think about going on stage, or maybe if they do, they they, they freak out, they, right. and they can't bring their funny in life I on have, the stage. I have a friend, Elaine Good, who's a, a holistic uh, chef. She she cooks gluten-free, sugar-free, and she's like a chemist in the, in the kitchen. She creates foods that are without like the not other ingredients that most people eat and they it tastes delicious. Anyways, the point of the story being she's hilarious. But she I mean her attitude is funny. She sees things funny. She's always making me laugh, but she couldn't go on stage and do it. It's so, co it's called coffee table funny. Coffee table funny. But so here you are somebody who notices all these things. And how did you end up monetizing it? How did you find your purpose, like going like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do stand-up? Well, and it wasn't easy back then. I mean, you were there with me at the comedy store, right? right. When uh, Mitzi didn't even have a drink license, right? No, <laughs> no. The waitresses would go next door to Art LeBeau's, right? right? And schlep the drinks over. Right. Well, when we started, there were 30 comedians. Well, right. There were 30. There are probably 30,000. My cleaning woman can do 10 minutes. <laughs> My gynecologist. You know what I mean? What's up with your cervix? <laughs> <laughs> but um, uh, so we started in the very beginning uh, with when there was nothing. And I, in college, I was always the funny one. If you look at my high school yearbook, it says, to Steve, the funniest guy the, you know, they're all that way. The guy who always made me laugh, I was always the one who was making people laugh. And, and when I got into my freshman year in college, somebody in the dorm had 
a, uh, a recording of the 2,000-year-old man, which I had never heard of. I'd never heard of the 2,000. And it was then that I decided that I wanted to be use my ability to make people laugh as a comedian. I had no idea how to do it until I came to Los Angeles and they opened the comedy store. And then I had a venue and that's when I... And I was always driven. I was always driven. You know, I knew what I wanted to do and, and I wouldn't let anything stop me except life, you know, <laughs> except, you know, a divorce. And then, and then that went into your act, and right? Then it, yeah. Then it went, I mean, there is a comic uh, who got divorced and was in the midst of his divorce and the night that his divorce became final, he was on The Tonight Show and he did a joke about his divorce. He said, I, I, I lost my wife. I'm so, uh, and the audience went, oh, he said, yeah, she divorced me. <laughs> you know, and, and I just, I, I was amazed that someone could do that, you know, on the, but that's what it takes. Bruce Valanche told me that in order to be a star in the business, you have to have the ability to step over your mother's corpse to get onto stage. Oh, oh my God. Do you know what I mean? That is, you know why? Because when people take my stand-up course mm -hmm. um, and they would go, oh, I can't joke about my mother. You know, they, they look like an anvil, especially the Catholic yeah, ones, right, would right. fall on their head, right? right? I can't, she'll be so upset. Mm -hmm. But the people who make it is that their purpose and their drive is so strong that they will step over their mother's grave, their mother's comments, the, the rejection, right. the whole family being upset at them because right. they know that is their purpose well, in life. Let's take let's take my book, Memoir for Nobody. I tried, I, for years, I was always afraid to tell family secrets, to tell things that I swore I would never tell. And... I, and in the book, I said, there's no art unless there's pain. And you have to dig deep to really get to the art. And so I, in my book, my purpose was to tell those stories to like an exorcist, to get them out. And, 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 what, and what happened was because I was able to get them out, well, on well, two things happen. The first thing, no one in my family will speak to me now, which is a bonus, which is, which is, it's like a gift with purchase. Yeah, yeah, okay. But the second thing was the groundswell of support that I got from people who didn't know me, you know, coming to my, to say, I'm sorry that happened, or I have a family just like that, you're not alone, uh, we're all in this together has been amazing. And it's because I took the chance to, to go out of my comfort zone and try something that I'd never done before. I think what you're talking about is truly biblical. It really is. I mean, it is in the Bible that Abraham has to leave the house of his father to find Israel to, to reinterpret that. Yeah. <laughs> Who alienates, knew? <laughs> he alienates his parents to find followers and fans. Yeah. Right? Because the truth is, if you just regurgitate 
what you were taught when you grew up mm -hmm. and you do everything the right way. And I don't want to upset anybody. And what will people think? Mm -hmm. Right. You've got to get past that to be successful as a comic. Wouldn't you say that's I, I true? I think you have to be successful. You have to get past that to be successful in any venue. But especially in a comic, is a comic no, in any creative venue. In any creative it, like for instance, I'm doing a show on June first, and I'm going to talk about my real estate brokers. But I have I'm doing it in a creative way. I created a character called uh, Sedell Katz, and she's hello, darling. I'm Sedell Katz. <laughs> I'll be selling your house. And I say one thing I learned about selling it: never get a, a broker with a walker. Who has a walker? <laughs> <laughs> this is such <laughs> because and and you know when she goes, yeah, I'll, I'll sell your house. Does it have steps? Right, right. <laughs> Sorry, that's her. I right. only do single family. I only houses. do I only one do story houses. houses, ranch houses. But you know, but for instance, I take everything like the first open house that we had for my house. This is a God's honest, true story. The broker comes in. She's got catered food, right? She's, they've hired valet parkers for the front of the house. Five, valet, five valets are out in front of them. Big mountain of food. And we're all, the house is all ready for the brokers open. And we're sitting in the living room. And she says something that you never want to hear your broker say, which was, do you smell smoke? <laughs> and I did. I smelled smoke. And I go to the window, and the mountain across the street from me is on fire. It's a brush fire. So now, now it's the, 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 the fire trucks are coming. The fire trucks are coming, and the guys in the yellow jumpsuits are, are out there. And it looked like, you know, ground zero out in front of my house. And I look over, and Sidel is wrapping up the food. <laughs> You know, this is how you know it's not going to go. Sedel's wrapping up the food. And now, I swear to God to you, water-dropping helicopters are over my house. They're dropping water on the, on the brush fire across the street. And I say to her, you know, I don't know a lot about real estate, but I don't think this is going to help. <laughs> so, so that was the first open house. The second open house, now it's like a plate of cookies. You know, there's no more catered food, and there's like one guy in the front who's going to park the car who got his license in Tijuana, you know. <laughs> and so we're sitting there, and Sidel says, you know what? I think I smell smoke again. <laughs> no. I swear to no. God. So I run downstairs, and the house on the corner of my street is on fire. Again, with the water-dropping helicopter. So... It's it's been a nightmare, but it all happened. But what I did was, I took that and I created the character, you know, because I don't have a Sedell, and and I created the character and I took it and I made it into something funny. You did something with it. With See, I think that's the problem that um, a lot of amateurs do is that they they'll just tell exactly what happened. Right. And that's, well, you got to do something with it, right? You have to do something with it, but you also have to have the ability to recognize that there's something there to do it with. Ah, 
You know what I mean? You, somebody else would go, oh, God, what happened? My house, my house could have burned down. I, I ruined my open house. Well, yeah, I said all that. I, I, I said all that. Uh, but um, after a while, I began to see the, the comedy. Like, only this happens to me. Only, you know, I have an open house and the street across from my house catches on fire. Who else does this happen to? Only me. And that's my attitude. Everything happens to me. Right. So you have found a, what I call a runner, right? Yeah. A runner. Right. Like, right. Um, and this all ha always happens to me. Mm -hmm. But, you know, so many beginning comics have such a hard time. They have the drive and the purpose. They right. want to do it. But they end up on stage more times than less saying, uh, well, I guess you had to be there. Right? Right. right. It ends with like a dead silence. Bam. Uh, I guess I had to be there. And I never really thought of this that much, but the talent, the real talent of a stand-up is that you see something that's funny to you, but you also have a sense that's going to hit with an audience. It's right. going to connect with an audience. And what is that all about? What well, is that sense? Well, it's the ability to translate life to the stage and... The whole trick about stand-up is that it has to sound like a conversation. It has to sound like you're just telling this for the first time. It just happened. You're just thinking about it now. And you're sharing it with 500 people, but you're talking like you're sharing it with one person. And that's actually what makes it funny to the audience is that it's like they're in on they see the joke because they get to know you and they're laughing at what's happening to you. And and it, it takes a while. You know, you just don't acquire that skill overnight. It takes years to find your center, you know, to find that thing, that, that, that hook, that runner that people can use on stage you know i i give the example i call it attitude you can call it whatever you want but everyone has an attitude. like joan rivers had an attitude jack benny had an attitude jack benny's attitude was he was cheap and so when he said when he was robbed and the guy said your money or your life and he said i'm thinking it got the biggest laugh because the audience knew the attitude. They What's knew like Seinfeld's attitude, would you say? He's an observational comic. Have he you ever noticed? So right. he's like, he's like every this. Man. He's every, every man. man. He's like the absence of attitude in a way of just um, where he's not involved. He's noticing. Right. Right. He's right. noticing stuff about him, about others. But um, let's see. Uh, let's think of other people. Uh, you know, Joan Rivers started with Phyllis let's, Diller. Yeah. Phyllis Diller. I'm ugly. That's her attitude. Let's talk about people who are alive now. Okay. <laughs> I don't know anybody who's alive. <laughs> well, I find like Chris Rock has definite attitude based he, on race, right? Yeah, he's a definite attitude and he's funny and he's able to, uh, he's able to translate that to the stage. You know, he to observe and then report. But one thing you said about, like, why does this always happen to me? Mm -hmm. So many comics have that, which, which I find transformational because 
you're a victim in life, mm-hmm. right? Right. All this shit happens to you. Right. But when you get that laugh, you're no longer the victim. Right. Then you, you take it's you, you take the negative and you turn it into a positive. By the laugh and the applause and but, the check. And the check, exactly. <laughs> it's always about the check. You pat your check after a gig and go, yes, the shitty life is worth it now well, because you, people are paying me because I had a shitty life. Well, you know what? It's funny is that uh, it's always about the check. It was always about the check for me. And we, I was in Hawaii. I was working at a hotel in Hawaii. And there was a middle act. And I spoke to the owner of the club. Uh, about 10 minutes and I went to the middle act and I said when we get paid get get paid in cash he said no no it's the guy's fine I said get paid in cash so the night we were to get paid I got paid in cash 100 200 300 400 420 440 450 455 455 here's okay. a roll of quarters here's, I swear to God, 51, 52, 53, 54. <laughs> and the middle act, the middle act took a check. Uh-huh. About a week later, he said, my check bounced. I said, really? You're kidding. I've had so many of them. Do you know there's a story in, the, in, in Memoir of a Nobody, which is a true story, where I, uh, a, a booker called me and he said, there's a new talk show in New York. And they'd like you to do the show. I said, great. He said, it's like $3,000 and you get a, they'll pick you up in a limo at your house and they'll fly you first class to New York. They'll put you up at the plaza and then you'll stay. And I, and I, I said, great, thanks. I hung up the phone and said, the check's going to bounce. <laughs> Did it? Wait. And I, and they, and my friend said, how do you know the check's going to buy? I said, no one is going to pay me $3,000 first class and a hotel and a limo. It's not. So I get to the, I, so all the time I'm on the trip, I go, well, when I get to the airport, there won't be a ticket. And I get to the airport, there was a ticket. So I, I get to the, I get to the airport, to New York and I said, there won't be a limo. There's a limo driver. And I said, it won't be the plaza. He takes me to the plaza. And he says to me, I'll pick you up tomorrow at 11. I said, okay. So at 11 o'clock, I'm downstairs in the lobby. At 11.30, he's not there. At 12 o'clock, he's not there. At 12.30, he's not there. I go, "Uh uh-huh, mm-hmm, all right. I'm not so stupid. I call the studio, and she said, oh, I'm sorry, but the show got canceled. I said, really? He said, I said, well, what are we gonna do? She said, not to worry. The limo driver's coming back with your check. Stay in the hotel for the rest of the day and take the limo and go go around, you know, do what you have to do in New York. And I said, okay, great. And then hung up the phone. I said to my, the check is definitely bouncing. Bouncing. It's definitely, this check is not going to make it. So I get to the, I get the, the next day they pick me up. They take me to the airport. I'm on the plane. I'm sitting in first class. Flight attendant comes over and she says, uh, I'm sorry, but, uh, and I go, aha, aha, this is it. Here it comes. I'm stranded in New York. She said, uh, we've overbooked the flight and we'll give you a $3,000 voucher if you go back to coach. And I figured, I better take it because it's the only thing I'm getting on this trip. So I went back to coach. I got the $3,000 voucher. The limo was there. He picked me up, took me home. 
I threw my clothes on the bedspread no one is allowed to speak on, to sit on, and I ran to the bank. I mean, literally, I was still in, ran to the bank and deposited the check. Two days later, it bounced like from here, to, and it turned out it was all a big scam. It was just a huge scam. A scam for scam. what? I I don't. They they flew in people. They 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 um they didn't pay the limo driver. They didn't pay the hotel. They didn't pay the. Act. Oh gosh. It was yeah. It, it was it was somebody trying was, to pretend they were a producer. Yeah, it was I I think. It was, Oh, I think that was done by Donald Trump, wasn't it? Isn't oh, that who it listen, was? if it was bad and it was in New York, it was Trump. Trump. Well, you know, here's the thing. We we all remember through our careers, not the checks that we cash, but the ones that bounce. bounce. Yeah. And that's and that's what it takes to be a stand-up comic because you remember the disappointment, right. how people hurt you. Right. Right? The rejection. The rejection. And I, and and that becomes like and fodder. Then, and then you're on a podcast in right. 2019 and <laughs> telling that story. story. Yeah, I mean, I've only in the 40 years I've done stand-up, I've only been stiffed once at a gig. Well, I'm talking about a nightclub. The the, the yeah. talk show was something. It was in El Paso. It's the only time I ever got stiffed. Wow, in all those years. All those really? years, yeah. Do you know what's weird um, is now the less that they pay you, the worse they treat you. Right. Don't you find that? Well, yeah. I'm, you're, <laughs> I always say you're you're less important than the beer. <laughs> Well, I was on tour. I was on tour with Seals and Crofts. This goes back a while. And we had been all over the country, first class and and um, first class air, first class hotels. And then I had been booked in San Francisco <clears throat> after the tour from, an, you know, it was like I, I always say, it was like from another career. So I get to this club and it's like a bar, you know, and the, the stage was like six inches off the floor and they had, they didn't have lights. They had like, they had like, you know, Malibu lights. You know, yeah. <laughs> with Low tin, voltage lighting. Yeah. With, with tinfoil around <laughs> like it. Like your yeah. bougainvillea. <clears throat> right. Okay. And uh, I go to the guy and I said, where's the dressing room? He said, dressing room? We don't have a dressing room. So he says, you can change in here. So he opens the door and it's the room where they keep the beer, you know, and it's like boxes of beer piled up to the ceiling with a light bulb uh, suspended from the ceiling. And uh, I'm furious, you know, but I don't say anything, but I'm furious. I'm furious at my agents. I'm furious at my manager for booking me in this after, you know, and I'm sitting there and I'm just fuming and the door opens and it's the bartender and he says, we need the chair. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know Frank Sinatra he said no matter how famous you are you gotta walk through the kitchen to get on stage well, jo uh, Joan Rivers and I were walking backstage uh, from the casino to the dressing rooms in at the MGM Grand in Las Vegas and she said and it was this, this long hallway painted white with a gray stripe and she said look at this they just, no matter how big you are they make you feel like help <laughs> 
Well, we're at the end of it. And let's, I'd always like to give people who are listening to this, and a lot of them are people who are trying to get out of the open mic rut, Mm. or they're trying to get into the open mic rut, or they're at the stage, they've gotten some pay, they're trying to move on. And, and they ask themselves, you know, should, should I quit? Do I quit? What do I do? And is there any kind of exercise we can give them or something that they can do to, you know, make that decision? Yes, see a psychiatrist. See a psychiatrist. But we, don't, we didn't have that option, right? We knew, you and I knew for certain... This is what we wanted. This to is do. what we wanted to do. There yeah. was no, there was no. But it was question. a different. It was a different time. The, <clears throat> the competition is so amazing now. Yes. It, it's, I mean, but the thing is, the difference when we started to today, when we started, our, our, um, the people we learned from were people from television and film. So we were learning from. Bob Hope from uh, Danny Kay from, you know, uh, Flip Wilson. I mean, we learned from those people. Mm-hmm. Today, the kids are learning from each other. They all go, so I, I, I work at McDonald's. I want to be a comic. I go into the comedy club. I see a kid on stage, and that's who teaches me. And what happens is everybody ends up sounding alike. They have the same attitude. They talk about the same things. And the secret of breaking out is to find your voice that's different from everyone else. You have to be able to, to observe and, 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 and stop talking about your crotch and start talking about things that make people think. And, and that will help them jump out from the crowd because the competition is unbelievable. It's, it, it is unbelievable. And you go to open mic now and you see... Everybody wears the same thing. They're all wearing like they just came from exercise class. Or, <laughs> you know what I mean? You know, they looking at them, they, they, they haven't exercised a day in their life. But it's, it's like that grunge look. Right. Right. And it just seems to me, if you even did something different and put on a nice blazer, bam, you would stand out. Well, but they, that, it's like, come full circle. Because yeah. we started in blazers, and now everybody's in, in grunge. And in order to be different, you have to put a blazer back on. <laughs> it's the truth. Um, it, it, you know, wh- I, I always thought that when you perform, uh, you should be different than the audience. In other words, you should, they coming, they're coming to see a show, so you should look like you're putting on a show. Today they look like they just got up out of the audience and, and stood on stage. Do we sound like two Altacuckers? Two Altacuckers. These kids uh, today. These kids today. Hey, those I bastards. <laughs> what the hell do they know? Well, I think the, the things to, to take from this is that um, stop asking people if you should do this or not do this because if it's your purpose, you have no, no choice. Did you have a choice? No, I didn't have a choice. I didn't have... It was... You know, I, you know what was I going to do? I My... My major in college was children's theater. (laughs) What the hell was I thinking? What the hell were you thinking? Well, you know, so so the other thing is stop looking to everybody else about what you should do and what you should be. You got to come from yourself. Right. And and you have to record your own experiences and then 
just don't bring them to stage like without any effort do something with it create an interesting character it doesn't have to be use your imagination it doesn't have to be the realtor that you that his voice would have really was you can, you can you change it right right, right. and <clears throat> it's really important when we started we all carried tape recorders and recorded ourselves and listened. And they were on reel to reel, reel right? To and reel. they were very heavy. <laughs> very heavy. And you had to get three people to carry it. <laughs> but um, it's we listened to our sets afterwards to hear what the laugh. Kipadati once told me, don't have laugh ears. And that is, you've got a, an audience of 3,000 and six people laugh. And you say, oh, that joke works. Yeah. No, it doesn't work. You have to be able to, I, I have a system. I have a system to, to remedy that. I would tape my show, then I would go home and I would transcribe it. Every single word, ah, the, ah, mm, eh, everything. And you put it down and then you look at, as a script, like a, like a, road, like a road map. Then you listen to the laughs and I would, I would grade them one to 10. And so this is a 10, that's a three, this is a two, that one's a nine. And then you see right in front of you that this joke didn't work. So you take it out, now you replace it with something else. That's, if it was a four, you try to get it to a seven or an eight. And by the time you continue to do that over the years, suddenly all your jokes are tens because you've weeded out the garbage. And that's why it takes so long to be great. That is great advice. Thank you so much, Steve Bluestein. Stein. Stein. I did that on purpose. And and everybody, go to Amazon or go to a bookstore if there's still one exists in your town. And get Memoir of a Nobody and look for his upcoming book called Take My Prostate, Please. Please. <laughs> Thank you. If you would like to learn more about turning your purpose into a career, go to themessageofyou.com where I'll give you free access to my online course. Click the button in the top banner when you get there. If you'd like to learn more about what I'm doing, then go to judycarter.com. Thanks for listening, and let's find your message and launch your career.